as we start launching into this book, and uh, I know this will be the first day, so you won't have expectations, so I ask that you not allow any annoyances of the flesh with me to hinder your overall positive attitude this morning. Uh, But we're going to introduce a little movement in our liturgy that we haven't always practiced in the past, but I think it's appropriate. Would you all stand with me? As we read our text this morning, both in honor of the scriptures as God's revelation of himself, but also as a remembrance that a lot of suffering, blood, and death had to happen among generations of previous Christians in order for us to have the privilege to hold this revelation in our hands this morning. So we're simply going to read the prologue. At the, actually, we're going to read the prologue of the prologue. We're just going to look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. These are the Holy Scriptures. May God bless our study of them this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we approach you with deep humility and gratitude for who you are. O Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, Come and abide in us and with us as we open up the scriptures. We long to not just be intrigued by information. We want to be transformed by revelation. And you and you alone can offer us that gift as we not only listen with our physical ears, but we are also attuned to the inner lucidity of the voice of the spirit as you are bringing truth to our souls that will empower us to accomplish our call to walk the earth as the pardon of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So here we are jumping into John. Here is my overall point this morning that I want us to consider in uh, verses one through five. I am working really hard. In fact, the first version of this sermon was verses one through 18. I just couldn't do it. So I'm gonna work hard to get through the book of John in less than four years. However, there are gonna be moments when we need to stop and settle in and just kind of land the plane and look specifically at some of the trees that we're passing over. And I think the prologue to John is one of those places. Now, I will tell you, the title of this series is John Beholding Christ. It is rooted in my identity as an absolute coward. That is why I entitled the study Beholding Christ. It was my cowardice because what I wanted to do, what first built out on that blank computer screen was John Beholding the Christ in you. But I was afraid without explanation that that language might end up being confusing. But make no mistake, we are studying this ancient writing about the historical Jesus who walked on earth, who suffered, who bled, who died, who, who, was, who, who has raised again to life, resurrection life. That's what we're looking at. But I'm looking at it for another 
There's another agenda beyond just looking at that for the information. It is my hope and prayer after Colossians, you understand the life that we are looking at is your life because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. That my desire is that instead of information just about the Savior from the past, we take what the past says about him right here in the present. And all of us enter into some version of Paul's experience in Galatians 2.20 where we can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, the life that I now live, I, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So therefore, in some sense, what is true about Jesus is true about the body of Christ. What's true about Jesus is true of you. So when we look at the historical Christ through the testimony of John, we are also peering into the mystery and getting to know more intimately the life that is already present in us. And hopefully it will combat this strange dualistic assumption that exists in modern Christianity where we're just striving really hard to be something we're not so we can look like Jesus and honor God. Living like Jesus, you will find, is the most natural, simple way to live because you are suited for it. It might come to a surprise to some of us, but the truth is, living antichrist is not the life humans were suited for. It's not the life we are created for. Therefore, I'm not battling with the bad me trying to be like Jesus. I'm I'm, I'm engaged in a fight of faith to actually trust that what he says about me is true. That's the battle of faith. It is not affirming these things. It's actually having the audacity to believe that you're forgiven, redeemed people who house the presence of Almighty God. That is the real battle of faith. So this morning, what I want us to remember is that the Christ who is in you is the living word and the uncreated God who created all that has been created. Therefore, we must understand that when we behold Christ, we are beholding our truest self, for we are the dwelling place of God. When we behold Christ, we are beholding the life within us, the life that is residing in the soul of humanity. Because Christ who is in you, the hope of glory, is the living word and the uncreated God who created all that has been created. And a helpful visual, if you'll remember from our study of the book of Colossians, which, truth be told, my agenda in Colossians had John in my sight. But do you remember this from our study of Colossians? What we're gonna read about, and there's this mystery of the incarnation, the way God works in the world as he expresses who he's, I mean, I love when we hear about miracles where God interrupts natural laws and natural order and he works things that our mind can't get around. But we have to understand that that is a special way that God works in the world, not really the typical way. If we look 
at the scripture, typically God does not work in the world independently of men and women who are called to manifest the work in the tangible world in which we live. And so what we're gonna see is the incarnation is that God chose to reside in Christ. This is the model of the incarnation, but the incarnation is not intended to simply be a Christian doctrine that we acknowledge, but rather it's a paradigm for the spiritual life because it reveals how God is at work in the world. So just as God was in Christ revealing himself to the world, now Christ resides in his body. Christ lives in us as the tangible expression of the love, the power, and the mercy of God. And so therefore, this principle at the very beginning of the book of John is of critical importance, number one. Number two, John is going to reveal some things that might be either difficult or maybe even offensive to some of the ideologies that of which we partake from time to time. Um, and so I want to say this. If I offend, please give me a chance to correct my communication. Some of you here have been walking with Jesus for the better part of your lives. But if we are doing our job as a community, hopefully there are those here that have yet to make the decision to walk with Jesus. Hopefully there are those here that very zealously chose to follow Jesus and after a devastating experience of toxic church culture or toxic theology, there's still this little shred of belief but there's no motivation to actively engage in the practice of the Christian faith. And maybe part of that is you were taught to assume belief rather than work to an affirmation of belief. And therefore, you weren't allowed to believe wrong things and still follow Jesus. That's, in all due respect, a stupid thing that churches propagate. Because if you look at the men who walked most intimately with Jesus, they didn't have him figured out till years even after the resurrection. It's still taking Peter 10 years after Jesus. He still can't wrap his mind around the fact that Jesus came for everyone. He has to have a dramatic vision. Therefore, your experience of salvation, God is not limited to your inability to comprehend or even to agree with a doctrine. He is just looking for your heart to be open to begin to respond. And here's the thing, our faith journeys and our intellectual journeys are rarely on the same path. Which is why St. Augustine said, ours is a faith seeking understanding. Because there are moments when faith comes much easier than the understanding. And that is okay. So you can disagree with the pastor. You can dis disagree with the elders and the grand elders. <laughs> and please hear my heart here. You can even disagree with what John's writing in the scripture because you might not be there intellectually. And yet, 
you find your heart saying, yes, Lord. I would implore you, respond to the spirit and be patient with your intellectual journey. Now, having said that, I also want to make clear that we are building a church community that sees herself as part of a movement. We are not just an independent church. We are a community captivated by the call to join the movement, to be so rooted in God's love that we are changing the understanding and expression of Christianity in our generation. Therefore, it's imperative because you don't have to join the movement to follow Christ. But some of you who are called to follow Christ will also be called to join the movement that the Spirit is birthing through this community. And if so, it's important that we understand who we are talking about when we talk about Jesus. And even if you're not there yet intellectually, we are talking about the eternal, uncreated God. This is what causes our faith to be very different than other faith systems or expressions. We are not talking about Jesus, the yoga guru that can just fill me with more peace and serenity. We are not talking about Jesus, the, the, um, the ethical teacher that can tell me whether or not I'm living a moral life or not. I mean, now all these expressions are inclusive. I'm not demonizing them. I'm just saying we're talking about something larger than that. We're talking about even something larger than an ideology to put my hopes and faith into so that hopefully I address that anxiety of death that we all have as humans because we're not sure what happens afterwards, which has been the primary selling point of evangelical Christianity over the past 100 years. But I'm talking about something way more than that. I'm not even talking about the Americanized Jesus who's buff and if he wanted to, could just break the cross through the spikes and, you know, protect his guns and his money. I'm not talking about that, Jesus. What I am talking about is all those visions being called to humbly submit to the revelation of Jesus in Scripture who is the manifestation of the uncreated God. That's our starting point with John. So let's look at this prologue together. John 1. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. There, uh, there are in, the, in that little section of two verses, there is a phrase that serves as bookmarks for the thoughts. It's repeated twice in two verses. I don't think I could help you out any more than that. What's the phrase? Nope, the same phrase. It's at the beginning and the end. In the beginning. Now, does that even if you're not an avid Bible reader, does that remind you of anywhere else in this book that we read that phrase? It's the first opening words of the scriptures. The opening words of the Hebrew Bible 
are in the beginning. In the beginning. Now, do you think that was an accident? I would submit to you it was not an accident. John knows what he's doing when he uses that phrase to encompass his op- the opening thoughts of his gospel. It's because we're supposed to be alerted. We are re- reading about the new creation narrative. And he's pulling in that echo of the original creation narrative. John is going to show us something about Jesus. He, and, and what he's going to do is to say in the coming of Jesus, there was a fullness of time where God was doing something unique in the world. It, it even divides our Western calendars because God has done something unique because in here, it is a recreation. Think about this. This is so fascinating to me. In the original creation narrative, humanity is made in the image of God. In the new creation uh, narrative, divinity takes on the uh, clothing of human flesh. And that is something that's utterly unique because it's not even mentioned in that first opening creation narrative. God is doing something brand new in the world that he created. And look at the metaphors. Notice this. I'm using the word Jesus because my, my, the, the ideas that I want us to look at this morning are that Jesus, the word of God, is God. Jesus, the word of God, is the source of life. And Jesus, the word of God, is the light of the world. Those are the three ideas we're going to look at. But what I want you to see is even though I've introduced the word Jesus, John has not. In fact, it's likely that what John did after he wrote his gospel is he actually went back after it was written and wrote the prologue, like any good communicator would do. And he adds this prologue. He's written at the top of the gospel that he's written because this is the vision of Jesus that he is expressing in the rest of his gospel. So, in the first creation, we have humanity made in the image of God. In second creation, you have God taking on humanity. And so, John doesn't begin with the word Jesus. He brings that in further down chapter 1. But I think we need to honor the fact, because we read this, and when we read word in God, we think Jesus and Yahweh, or we might think Son and the Father. And it's okay, I'm not saying that those concepts aren't present there, but I am saying, let's honor the fact that that's not John's original go-to metaphors. What are his metaphors for Jesus? That he is the word who was with God and who is God, that he is life and that he is light. These are the metaphors of Jesus with which he begins. And if we want to go full circle, we can also say John is the apostle who in his epistles gives us one other metaphor for who God is. Anybody? Oh, thank you, front row. He is the one that's going to say God is love. Word, light, life, love. These are the introductory metaphors for understanding John's thinking. John will show that Jesus is the word, but first his metaphors for Jesus are word, life, light, and love. And he simply says, the word was in the beginning, was, in the beginning, was with God, and was God. 
The unique idea of Christianity is that both is that Jesus is both human and divine. He is the creator God who chose to become a man that he might reveal himself to his creation by entering the human experience. The God who is spirit takes on the flesh of humanity. And John says, this is his word. Now, just a brief parenthetical explanation. Do I have time for that? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see at 1110 if I had time for it or not. I, I think a sense of humor about your past experience is healthy to grow through difficulties in, in identifying your own growth of maturity. So sometimes I find some of my proclivities and beliefs and habits laughable. But because I'm laughing at my habit doesn't mean I'm laughing at you if you engaged in that habit. I, I don't intend it to be a personal insult because the evidence suggests that most of you are way more sincere than I am. So I've got to take that into account. So I don't care if we use this phrase, but I don't think it's inconsequential if our minds replace Jesus as the word of God to the Bible as the word of God. I just want to highlight that in the scriptures, the Bible's not called the word of God. In the scriptures, the scriptures are called the scriptures. Now, there's one fundamental reason for that, which is when most of them were written, we didn't have what we call the Bible. That doesn't get codified and solidified until after the fact that it was written. No one sat down and said, you know what, I think I'm gonna add a chapter to the Bible today. No one did that. And I do think it's important for us to understand the word of God in scripture isn't the Bible. Who, who or what is the phrase word of God referring to in the scripture? Jesus. So for me personally, I'm not saying anyone else is doing this, I realize there's something of idolatry when I put my interpretation of the scriptures in my language on equal par with Jesus. And it creates a weird dichotomy that puts people under strange condemnation because here's the thing, you can still be faithful to Jesus and have questions about the Bible. It is okay. It just means that your creator endowed you with a brain that's going to cause you to investigate and ask questions. That is not being unfaithful to God. It is honoring him with the intellect that he gave you. Because it's very crystal clear from these passages that John understands that the word of God is in fact Jesus. To experience Jesus is to know the life of God in the human soul and, and, and again, when, I, when we call it the Bible, we're looking for principles for living. When we call it Jesus, we're looking for a person whose presence is real. And it's not the exact same thing. So to follow Jesus is not simply to align myself with the principles of the written word. It is to give myself to the presence of the living word. 
That's what we are talking about when we talk about following Jesus, which is why we have the unique honor of being part of a community that's not gonna hold your faithfulness to Jesus to affirmations of a body of doctrinal belief statements. We're all here because of the revelation of Jesus drawn by the Holy Spirit, and we may all have very different beliefs about doctrine and how we interpret the Bible. And you know what? That can be difficult. If we're not following the Spirit, we can be really mean with one another because of that, or, in humility, we can recognize that this diversity is a beautiful tapestry that God is weaving together. And we understand, I can't do this on my own. I need the gifts of the body of Christ in order to be healthy. And in order for me to be open to the gifts of the body of Christ, my criteria cannot be, I'm only going to listen to those I already know previously agree with my interpretation and my outlook. We actually get to enter into that diversity and realize it's a more faithful expression of the nature of God than homogeny. Sameness. So number one, Jesus, the word of God, is God. We are talking about God and clothed in flesh. Number two, Jesus, the word of God, is the source of life and light for everyone. The other thing I want to challenge you in is that we are taught to read the scripture as if the truth it extols is primarily for Christians. And the Bible never puts those parameters around itself. We're talking about the uncreated God. We're not just talking about the intellectual property of organized Christian religion. Hopefully, it's an organized Christian religion is informed by that, but our history shows us that it has not always been. We are talking about the revelation of God to humanity, and this is what John cares about. That's why he uses the word logos for word, because logos would have been something that his Jewish audience, which he is primarily writing for probably, his Jewish audience would have heard that and they would have recognized this concept already because they already had this idea that there's the word of God and then there's the logos of God. The logos is the way God gets communicated and works in his world, which is why you'll see often references in the Old Testament to the word of God. It's not void. The word of God's going to accomplish whatever he intends for it to. And if you go to the look book of Proverbs, um, it gets a little closer to what John's talking about because in Proverbs, it's called wisdom and wisdom is personified, not as an attribute of God, but as a living entity that was there with God at the beginning of creation. So as he says, it was the word through which God created everything. Proverbs is going to celebrate that it was wisdom that was there at the foundation of the world. So that idea is already there in Jewish thinking, but also the Greeks, this word logos, it also was was essentially first principles of Greek philosophy. So they too would have had a reference point for what, Paul, for what John is saying as he approaches his gospel totally different than the other three gospels because his is intended to have a larger, more universal appeal. So why John, unlike the others, he doesn't begin with genealogy. That would have been important if only Jews were reading the gospel, but for a gospel that has universal appeal, he's not gonna begin at genealogy because that's to begin with the earthly origins of Jesus. And John doesn't wanna do that. 
John wants to begin with the heavenly non-origins of Jesus because he was never created. He just always was. Existing as the word through whom all things were created. And John celebrates this. So the Jesus we're seeking to follow is the uncreated God who is the source or creator of life and life for everyone. Look at how he very simply says it in verse three, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. Paul will go on to celebrate in that great hymn of Christology in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Christology is just the body of, uh, of theology that deals with the study of Christ. It means nothing, but man, it's really cool to say, isn't it? I, I certainly felt smarter immediately whenever I said the word Christology. Anyway, in that great hymn of Christology found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, what does Paul write? He says he, in speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Why? Verse 16, for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Even those who deny him even those who fail him, even those who betray him, even those who want to live as if there is no reality of a creator. Your creator is so loving and gracious that he holds those in defiance of him together. That's the life that's in you. My inability to forgive is a bit of an illusion of my ego because the truth is there's a life in me that holds his enemies together because of love and mercy. God is not engaged in a cultural war conflict that some, unfortunately, of his fathers get, followers get preoccupied with. There's no conflict with the one who holds everything together. He'll go on to say in Colossians chapter 3, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and? Christ is all and? In all. all. Now that may be theologically disturbing. It's okay. That's why there's coffee and Rubens and good pipes uh, tobacco. And if need be, a $30 hour and a half cigar (laughs) so that you can engage in leisure and contemplate theology. That's what it's intended for. But we can still begin with, man, I don't understand how all that works. In fact, It creates a lot of questions for me because it doesn't quite jive with the simple formulas I was given. And yet, even though I don't understand it, I trust Christ enough that I can look at the scripture and say, 
I choose to have faith that that's true. He's holding everyone together. He's present in everyone, even those who follow a different religious structure or those who deny his existence altogether. It's a beautiful thought here, isn't it? That there is something of Christ nonetheless still saturating what seems at times to be a God-forsaken world. It's the very opposite of God-forsaken, my friends. It is a God-saturated cosmos in which we are living. Jesus abounds. Finally, he says that Jesus, the word of God, is the light of the world who will always triumph. Here's how he says it, verse five. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Love wins. Love always wins. Love will always win. Put down your weapons. Your noble calling is not that of a culture warrior standing in antagonism to the world that God wants to taste his grace and forgiveness. He can't use you for that mission as long as you want to be a soldier for his ideology. In the mission of God, only wounded, humbled lovers will do. Because that is his posture. And you don't have to combat because he wins. If you believe that the school system in America was handed over to the sovereignty of nation whenever a law was passed that there couldn't be organized prayer, then may I humbly, as your friend suggests, your God is too small, and it is not the God celebrated by the prologue of John's gospel. Because that God didn't give up because some puny Americans passed a law. He didn't decide, well, I'm no longer gonna be omnipresent, I can't. I mean, I've been able to cleverly overcome the oppression of all the other countries throughout history until I didn't see that one coming. The United States, they passed a law against me. Guess I'll back away and encourage my followers to become known for their fear-mongering and withdrawal instead of engaging the darkness because we know the darkness will never, ever overcome the light. Love will always win. In fact, there is a vision that the Apostle Paul articulates, and I really hate the way it's been treated. Because when we read this, we read into it things that are not there. We're gonna read into this scripture that I'm about to read. My guess would be you were taught to read it in a weaponized way. 
And I would implore you to take a moment and not read it as a weaponized threat, but read it instead of potentially beautiful and glorious future for humankind that's birthed out of the power and grace of God. Because instead of being a culture warrior, Paul gives us a different vision. It's in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. It doesn't say, so at the name of Jesus, every Christian knee will bow. That's not what it said. For one thing, the Christianity that you and I know and practice did not exist when Paul wrote this letter. He's talking about something that predates organized Christianity. And he says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't pretend that I have a sophisticated doctrine that I've organized out of that revelation. All I can say is this. The scriptures point me to a worldview full of optimism because it says there will be a time when all those who experience Christ as hidden from their view will one day see him as he is. That one day everyone will recognize Jesus Christ is Lord and will bow the knee before his sovereignty. This is the vision that is in my heart. It is not about the destruction of America. It is not about the doom and gloom prophets. It is, I believe in my heart that God is working this dream to fruition where there is a time when every knee is bowed and every tongue confesses and I just wanna be part of that mission right now. That great revealing, that great unveiling of who he is. So how do we respond in mysteries as magnificent as these? Man, I spent a lot of time in turmoil this week. As you can see, those five verses carry with it so many different ways that we could go and we could think. And even thinking about the application, I started in one area of thought at the beginning of the week and it just grew over time but I think for this morning we're going to do something that's a little out of the norm and I want to end this sermon with a call for every individual if you are not already to become a follower of Jesus or if need be to renew your calling to follow Jesus. Become a follower, or if need be, renew your calling to follow him. How do you do this? You all know how much I struggle with formulaic simplicities. 
And yet, I felt the gentle rebuke of the Lord this week that perhaps I've over-communicated that disdain. And I want to be as practical as I can this morning. Number one, learn more. You, you don't have to believe like us to be our friend and, to, and traveling companion. Most churches are built on the assumption that you must believe in order to belong. God has called us to a different mission, to create space where you can belong before you believe. So you are welcome here with all your doubts, insecurities, and vehement disagreements. It's okay. That's part of the process of learning. Jesus himself said, even the builder considers the cost before building. Learn. Learn by being with us, by worshiping with us. Learn by sitting with us at our potlucks where we can share our lives together. If you're a podcast person, learn by asking about podcasts, books that you might read that have been helpful to others. But what I am saying is the approach in the Bible is to welcome space for you to grow, not threaten you with imminent dangers of hell if you don't make a decision right this second. I don't see that in the scripture. I see Jesus creating place to say, consider. Consider the cost, learn more. But then at some point in that learning, it has to coalesce with this end goal. Believe in Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world, the Lord of life. Align yourself with him. This is so critical. There is a false ideological religion out there that says transformation comes from affirming information. This is a lie. It isn't true. That is just an invitation to ideology that becomes idolatry because it's a replacement for Jesus because our faith is in what we believe about Jesus, not in the work of Jesus. And this is a mistake from which we must repent. So align yourself with him. Repent of the sins that have harmed yourself and others when you were not following the way of Jesus. So many times evangelists insert a false, human-motivated guilt and shame over our sins. I will not do that. If you're not aware of how living anti-Christ is bringing chaos and destruction, then you shouldn't be pressured to change your way of living. You shouldn't be pressured to have to live a different way. What I'm talking, and, and that's what causes a false repentance, because I'm repenting over the sins that you're mentioning, not my own. Repentance is when you recognize the flow of your life that is anti-Christ and self-preoccupied has caused a way of thinking that is harming yourself and the people around you that you love. It's called the consequences of sin. It's the consequences of living anti-Christ. And when you can see that, you can come to Jesus and be liberated by that shame and that guilt because he extends forgiveness. So repent 
of the sins that have harmed yourself and others when you were not following Jesus. Ask Jesus to empower you to follow him with your life. Pray. Ask Jesus to be your life and your Lord and to fill you with his power so that you can become a manifester of his love in the world. And then it's crazy, but I think the first couple centuries of the church had the right idea. Instead of decision cards and follow-up phone calls, get baptized. That's what this whole thing is about. It's not a trinket. It's not a gimmick. It's not something cute to put in a photo book. It is a declaration that I realize I no longer live. I have died with Christ. I was buried with him in the consequences of death and with him in that place. I was made to life again by the resurrecting power of the life-giving spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And so I come out of the waters in the newness of resurrection life intent on following him all the rest of my days. It's this public declaration, the former has passed away, the new has come. In fact, the early churches, you went in the waters without clothing. When you came up, they wrapped a robe, a white robe around you. I am not suggesting we return to the practice. (laughs) Particularly in the close quarters of the baptismal tank. But I am saying that we appreciate the imagery that they were going for. Because you do go into the waters naked and you rise symbolic of the fact that you are a man or a woman forever clothed in the righteousness of Christ, never needing to doubt his love, acceptance, or grace. Be baptized, my friends as an affirmation of your faith. That was the universal appeal. Bear with me for one more. And if you're here this morning, if you're connected to this community, it might mean that the way you're gonna walk that journey out is with this community. And so I would consider you, I, I would suggest that you consider joining the movement to be a community so rooted in God's love that we are renewing the understanding and expression of Christianity in our generation. Will the worship team come forward as we get ready to come forth and take communion? As you seek the Lord, I'm not gonna tell you to repent, to repeat a prayer after me. Pray your own prayer. It'll be way more meaningful, but If we can be part of your journey and you want to talk about baptism and getting plugged into the movement here, call us, make an appointment. I would love to sit and talk with you. I would love to, as long as it's helpful to you, to be present in your journey to serve you any way that I can until such a time as my service is less than what you need for your next season of growth. I I would be happy to walk with you. Let us know if the Spirit called you to say your own prayer this morning. So, everyone stand. As we come to the Lord's table, I'm asking you to discern where the Holy Spirit is calling you to act. To believe or to renew, to align through repentance, to pray, or is it time to be baptized? Or is it time to recognize the futility of a missionless life 
and maybe join the movement to live the love. Create some space, respond as a 